Can we have our beef and eat it too by embracing high-tech, lab-grown meat? Climate One conversations feature energy companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. To all beef patty special sauce, lettuce, cheese... What's more American than a big meaty hamburger? What you make isn't meat, it's a plant-based burger. That's freelance journalist Chase Purdy recalling a conversation he had with a CEO of Impossible Foods, one of a new generation of companies that are developing high-tech alternatives to animal protein made from plants. Chase's new book is called Billion Dollar Burger, Inside Big Tech's Race for the Future of Food. They're not targeting vegans and vegetarians. They're targeting die-hard carnivores. Sophie Egan is author of How to Be a Conscious Eater, Making Food Choices That Are Good for You, Others, and the Planet. She formerly served as Director of Health and Sustainability Leadership at the Culinary Institute of America. She says the future of protein features two innovations that could reduce the climate impacts of our diet, meat manufactured from plants and meat grown in a laboratory from the cells of real animals. The the future of of protein, I would argue, is is far more diversified or could be far more diversified than those two camps. Uh, We can can certainly get into the the many parallel pathways that are needed given the scale of the protein, uh, the need for the protein shift in terms of feeding uh, the growing population in ways that that really uh, stay within planetary boundaries, uh, that is the carrying capacity of the earth. As far as how those camps are different, I mean, what's interesting is, uh, you know, sell meat, and, and certainly my, my colleague here, Chase, can speak to this in far more detail, but is essentially saying the idea of slaughtering animals is crazy, and yet people want to eat meat. So in the future, let's not have factory farms, and let's cultivate um, the meat from, from cells, and, and think of, thinking of these along the lines of breweries and lots of other foods, we're very accustomed, especially um, in the U.S. with highly uh, processed foods, we're highly accustomed to foods that come from, from laboratories. Um, the plant-based meat folks uh, are, are um, similarly creating kind of uh, replications of what are uh, commonly consumed as burgers and so on, um, but 100% from plant-based ingredients. So ingredients that are um, at some point in their origin, they came from the ground. Um, they might be soy or other types of plant proteins. And then in amalgamation often uh, sort of uh, mimic uh, the traditional forms of, of meats that that are more traditional hot dogs, burgers, and the like. Right. A lot. Yeah. There's uh, all sorts of those things uh, coming out now. Uh, Chase Purdy, let's talk about the terms because and it's something that's new and disruptive. Uh, you know, what terms take hold? You know, have a lot to do the, with uh, the way uh, new products or concepts are perceived. There's clean meat, cultured meat, lab meat. You know, help us with um, the nomenclature here for this new and in this new area. Right. Yeah. The terms span the gamut and they get as weird as motherless and fatherless meat and as sort of uh, clinical as in vitro meat. Um, yeah, this, this this space has absolutely been arguing over and is continues to argue over what it wants to call its product. Um, they, you know, not so long ago, were really touting the sort of aphoristic clean meat, which sort of is meant to like evoke clean energy. Uh, but then the, the guy who who brought this to the public side back in 2013, who is in the Netherlands, basically said, this doesn't work in Dutch. It sounds like it's being run through detergent. Um, and so there's a lot of debate over what to call this. Um, 
in uh, the book, I chose to go with cell cultured meat or cultured meat because that's sort of very scientifically straightforward, even if it doesn't sound the most appetizing. Uh, and it gives people maybe an idea of how it is created. You know, I think that it is a really, I mean, these companies are definitely going to be grappling over this, especially as regulators start thinking about and making decisions about how this will be labeled on food packaging for people so that it's clear for consumers. So we'll see where it ends up. But right now, uh, it looks like the USDA and FDA are currently in their, in their documentation using cell culture. So we'll see what happens. When I heard read uh, clean meat, it uh, reminded me of well, I vividly remember reading Eric Schlosser's Fast Food Nation and talking about how many parts of you know I don't know dozens of cows are in one hamburger and basically saying there's cow manure in, in your in your hamburger traces of it and so I thought clean meat was sort of a, a a jab at 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 the traditional cattle beef because they're saying hey there's not there's no poop in this this clean stuff. Um, tell us, Chase Purdy, how is it made? I mean, clearly there's growing fat tissue and muscle tissue equals real meat, but how is it made? Right. Well, I mean, you basically do need three uh, things to make cell cultured meat on a, you know, a simplified level. You need the animal, which typically uh, these technicians will go out and you can just do a pretty harmless biopsy on a cow or a chicken or a pig or what have you. Collect cells. They typically want stem cells. Uh, and once you have these cells in a lab, they establish cell lines so that they don't have to keep going back out to animals very often. Uh, once you have an established cell line, you can take a you sort of a handful of these cells and you stick them in what's called a nutrient-dense liquid medium or a serum, which if you want to think about how this works in our own bodies or in animal, you know, to sort of uh, livestock bodies, Blood is what really is, you know, transporting lots and lots of nutrients throughout our systems, feeding our cells everything that they need. Blood is very rich in like protein and certain amino acids and all of these sort of things that allow cells, it really makes them happy and allows them to sort of replicate over and over again. So scientists have been working to create uh, essentially what are like plant-based or synthetic liquid mediums as best as they can. Um, for those cells to sort of happily sit in and proliferate. And all of that happens inside what's called a bioreactor. Uh, people in the industry are trying to call it, get the term cultivator out there. Essentially, it's a big stainless steel tank that's very fancy and very technical. And the cells sort of sit inside of it in the liquid and they do grow into fat tissue and muscle tissue. In some cases, these companies are growing connective tissue. And you put those things together and you do have meat. What does it cost and when will it be available? When and where? Right. So I'll just start with the second part first. I mean, I was talking to one of the CEOs just yesterday about, you know, if you had to list the top three places where regulations are getting closest to allowing this in the market, he said, in order, number one, Singapore, absolutely. Number two, the US. It used to be Hong Kong, but there's been so much unrest there now that it's doubtful that Hong Kong regulators are going to have a lot of time to devote toward uh, bringing cultured meat into that market. And then number three is most likely Israel. Um, in terms of the cost, that's a story that I think is like really interesting because often when people talk about cell cultured meat, they the language they use kind of writes it off pretty quickly as being very far out in the future because of cost. But if you think about the fact that in 2013, when it was introduced to the world by Dr. Mark Post in London, it was about $1.2 million per pound. Extremely affordable, I know. And like, uh, 
in a matter of seven years, it has dropped like precipitously. Uh, in 2017, one of the companies said they got it down to 9,000 per pound. And a year after that, that same company told the Wall Street Journal it was down to $1,000 per pound. Uh, most recently, whenever I was out in San Francisco talking to a few of them, um, they said they had like a $50 chicken nugget, which is down to about $45 per chicken nugget. And a company in Israel that I've spoken to in the last you know, week or so, they're aiming and say they're very close to having, um, and again, this is kind of far out, I guess, but by 2022, they're on track to having about $10 a pound. So it's dropped precipitously, the price, and that will only drop faster as these companies start building their new pilot production facilities, which five of them are doing. What I think would be interesting mm-hmm. to, to observe is that for so long, meat has been artificially low in this country. Um, and the ways that um, a maximum efficiency, the harm to the animals, the surrounding ecosystem impacts of factory farming, and as is becoming ever more clear now, but certainly Eric Slosser and other authors have revealed, has really treated quote unquote essential slaughterhouse workers as truly disposable bodies. And so there's a lot going on in, the, in food not only in the protein space, more broadly around a notion of true cost accounting. And it's interesting to me because while no one should reasonably, and there's affordability issues, of course, but no one should reasonably be expected to eat a thousand dollar or million dollar burger, so too should we really be questioning the concept of a dollar burger or of a dollar chicken nugget and the existing costs um, and, and I think in general with protein shift that's occurring in the many different sort of pathways to more sustainable, more nourishing protein alternatives uh, may help to bring some of those true costs uh, more into light as, as, as meat actually becomes more, um, meat and red meat in particular, may become more of special occasion items. Dr. Walter Willett is uh, uh, one of the most cited scientists and he's, he's uh, started to encourage Americans to think of, of meat like lobster, something you have maybe once a year. And that cost you know, reflects the, the less um, frequent nature of it. And other people talk about meat as a kind of a garnish, kind of a sideshow rather than the big hunk central central show on the plate. Um, so this sort of, you know, uh, the cost is coming down for, for, for lab meat, cultured meat. Um, Sophie Egan, that reminds me what happened with the plant-based burgers, as I remember when they basically followed a Tesla model, you know, to make something that's, that's very elite, uh, expensive, impossible foods came out in some very fancy restaurants in San Francisco and they had celebrity chefs, Tracy Desjardins and others. And then, the, and now uh, you can get a Beyond Burger. I went to Carl's Jr. last night and got a Beyond Burger, right, uh, in, in uh, central Washington. So now it's, you know, it's the fast food chains. That happened quite dramatically and quickly. So is thinking about, you know, shifting protein um, you know, thinking, putting your sort of sociologist hat on, uh, you have a master's in behavioral you know, change, you know, think about, uh, you know, how is this happening? Is this sort of hitting the mainstream, hitting middle of America? This is not a uh, move from just the coast and Boulder and, and uh, Berkeley. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. I think, I think many folks are looking at the plant-based alternatives, just the, the pace of interest and increased sales, not only again in, in impossible burgers, but you look at 
every category of the grocery store that's being disrupted with plant-based alternatives, yogurts and milks. And there are similarly nomenclature wars about what can be called a milk, right? Um, there has to be milk-like beverage or, or um, you know, white liquid or something like, like these other names. Um, I think in this case, it's actually not so much the behavior, the, a behavior change story as it is a, a money story um, in the sense of they had incredible distribution very fast. And then they had um, really a, a quite a successful marketing cam campaign with um, all kinds of just showing up everywhere, right? And with uh, all kinds of celebrities and influencers, uh, as you mentioned. So those elements absolutely help to create um, two key elements in behavior change, which is the built environment. Are choices available to you in the first place? Um, do you, as opposed to having to go out of your way to find that choice? Um, are they available at, um, and then culturally, the social environment, is it normal, cool, and aspirational to eat in those ways? And so you have those two aspects that just, um, it made it almost impossible not to uh, kind of give into that interest um, and that curiosity to go try it. It's like, why not go try it? Yeah, I would add actually to that two things. One is it was very interesting for me to just kind of watch like, how did Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods take two different strategies to get to market and which one kind of ultimately won? I mean, they're both doing pretty well. But, you know, Beyond Meat very notably like decided that they would tackle the retail space first. Impossible Foods decided that it would sort of go and make splashy market to market entry entryways, uh, partnering with with known restaurants and known chefs. And I think to your point, Sophie, like really driving up sort of that curiosity factor. And the cultured meat companies have absolutely taken note of that. And that's the exact cue many of them are looking at taking as that impossible route, which I think will sort of help introduce people to an idea that, you know, might be weird, but might also make people curious enough to try it. And I think that um, that speed and the way people, the speed that people have adopted and shown interest in these products is reflected not just in like sort of the sales data, but also how the meat companies talk about themselves. Um, it was, I think in March, 2017, the former CEO of Tyson, Tom Hayes appeared on like Fox Business and very notably like explained how Tyson Foods was not a meat company. Tyson Foods is a protein company, uh, which is kind of like a massive shift, I think from anything we'd seen before. And he basically said, people are interested in anim conventional animal protein. People are interested in getting plant protein. Uh, maybe someday they'll be interested in getting cell-cultured protein. Either way, we can serve it up, which is just like an astonishing move. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the future of protein. Coming up, can cutting-edge food technology address structural issues beyond what we eat? Food is connected to everything. And so often the structural racism that occurs in the food system, it's like the hub of a wheel and all of the spokes go to all of the other elements of society in which structuralism is also pervasive. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. 
Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about new kinds of meat from plants and the cells of real animals. My guests are Sophie Egan, author of How to Be a Conscious Eater, Making Food Choices That Are Good for You, Others, and the Planet. And Chase Purdy, author of Billion Dollar Burger, Inside Big Tech's Race for the Future of Food. So are lab-grown meats really less harmful to the environment than livestock meat? The short and blunt answer to that is we don't know because none of these companies have actually produced life cycle analyses to what their actual uh, production process looks like. And so at this point, we can only infer from the academic work that's been going on. And if you look basically across the academic work and the research that's been behind this, there are varying degrees of how much better it will be. But in every single case, there's not much debate over the fact that it would be better in terms of like emissions, in terms of water use, certainly in terms of like overall land use. Um, And if you want to look at energy, I mean, like, you really do kind of, I mean, it depends on how you look at it, right? I mean, how do you, how do you like, are you measuring like all the energy it takes to actually plant and grow massive fields for for grains Uh, and the energy it takes to ship those grains to animals and the energy it takes to like maintain these animals, ship these animals, kill these animals, slaughter these animals. I mean, the, it's not a very far leap looking at the research to sort of infer, I think, that it will be better. But the, the, but simply, we don't have the raw data. We don't know yet. Yeah, a lot of the Amazon has been um, cut down to grow soy, to feed the cattle. Uh, Sophie Egan, what do we know about the life cycle analysis or the climate impacts of these plant-based alternatives? Are they really better? And some of them are really driven by some some people who want to put meat out of business and say it's better than cows. Do we really know? Right. Well, you know, so what we do know is that the raw ingredients uh, of plant-based foods, plant-based proteins in particular, are generally speaking, far less resource intensive. So it's, you know, 20 times the greenhouse gas footprint of a burger compared to, you know, lentils or legumes. Water footprint is similar. Land use is, is similar in terms of these ratios. The other big factor that you have is, uh, Chase was alluding to this, is what's called conversion ratio. And this is just, you know, for feed con- uh, ratios as well as how much feed uh, inputs does it take to turn, you know, an animal into human food? Um, and that's where the bulk of a lot of the um, environmental in- footprints come from. It's just the fact that you have to raise an animal over time and feed it multiple times a day. Um, then, of course, yes, there's em- there's emissions from um, burps from it's primarily the burps, not the burps uh, of cows, um, but there is methane from the manure uh, of cows. Um, and so, in terms of you know what's in an Impossible Burger or what's in a Beyond Burger, it's very important to to um, to sort of just take a step back and say that generally speaking, plant proteins, no question, a huge huge win environmentally versus. Um, in particular, red meat of, uh, of, of ruminant meat. So those are um, animals that have a rumen, like a cow and uh, lamb and goat, primarily in the U.S. So that said, what's tricky with Impossible and Beyond is that they've really, and others, they really are rather um, uh, confusing in terms of their ingredient lists. If you look at them, they have many ingredients. And it's always an interesting um, sort of dichotomy to me. I mean, I, my first book was all about the, the American food psyche and how Americans and eaters in general are full of contradictions. Um, one of them is that there's been this general increase in eating 
um, you know, in clean labels and eating more whole, you know, minimally processed foods. And you have the same folks who are looking for that purest um, label who are eating impossible and beyond, which is like all kinds of butylated, hydrolyzed, you know, multisyllabic ingredients that are not sitting in your pantry. Um, and, 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 and how you kind of think, well, those are kind of incongruous. But when you really dig into it, there is, it is basically like pea protein. I, they've, um, Impossible has reformulated. Um, so I haven't actually recently looked at the, the full list, um, but it's, it's largely um, proteins extracted or kind of um, derived um, from a soy or, or a legume based protein. And now the reason that there's some question about this is that um, has to do with that at scale, if now everyone's eating impossible and beyond in such enormous quantities, does this now incentivize monocropping of those um, raw ingredients that have you know, equally or at least also hazardous impacts um, on soil health and on um, uh, land use and, and so forth. So generally speaking, the environmental argument is pretty solid for the plant-based alternatives. Where it's not so solid is on the human health side. If you actually compare the nutritional profiles of a regular Whopper with an Impossible Whopper, it's almost identical. The first uh, iteration of, of Impossible was actually far worse in terms of saturated fat, for example. So the point is we can have, um, there's a common health halo that comes with all kinds of foods that have attributes like organic or natural, or um, if they are genuinely better in some other area like cage-free or um, you know, an, an animal welfare or a sustainability attribute, but we can't just assume that they're also better for us uh, nutritionally. And there's also heme, which is the blood. Uh, people like that juicy uh, sort of flavor and experience that comes from eating a real burger. And heme is a GMO ingredient uh, that we don't know the long-term health consequences, Sophie, of what humans eating that. Right. And, and that's, the, that's the case in, in both of these areas is that it's very important, I think, to have a little bit of a cautionary approach. I mean, one of the things that's weird with the U.S. overall is we have um, basically the uh, we don't have the precautionary principle, which in many other countries, you know, some folks say it inhibits innovation, but it does also in the US, what it means is we throw stuff into the food supply and say, we hope it doesn't kill you. Um, more or less, I mean, I'm exaggerating their safety, you know, food safety requirements, but in terms of the long-term consequences, a very strong example of this is trans fat, right? Partially hydrogenated oils. Um, it, only after many, many, many years and human, you know, basically American consumers as um, the guinea pigs did the FDA come out and say, actually, that's not generally recognized as safe. Um, and so then it had to go through this whole process of all these companies reformulating and pulling back products and so on and phasing it out. The reason to bring that up is because that's, that it is important to realize before sort of jumping on any of these bandwagons that there is not yet generations of, that there are not yet generations of data to see how they behave in the body. Um, whereas we do have generations of data of seeing how those more traditional foods um, chickpeas and beans and legumes and whole grains and, and all these other kinds of, um, of more minimally processed, more traditional uh, foods actually can contribute. They can be protective um, in terms of contributing to, long, to longevity. So Chase, I don't know your thoughts on that in terms of the cell meat, but I think that is a very important aspect is just to um, recognize that some of these things could take years to show effects in the body. Yeah, no, I think that, I mean, that's a really important point. And it kind of also just, you know, 
underscores the real, I mean, whenever I talk about cell cultured meat, one of the questions that always pops up is how are we going to know the long-term effects? And I did talk to, you know, the CEO of Just, Josh Tetrick, and sort of posed this question, like, how are you going to communicate the nutritional information around your products? Are you basically just going to ask people to implicitly trust that if they eat this over a long period of time, they're going to be fine? And, you know, Josh brought up Coca-Cola. He was basically like, one of the things about Coca-Cola, as opaque as it is, is that it has this sort of mystery factor like they they're covering up certain flavors with other flavors they have a secret recipe that's like in a vault somewhere in georgia no one knows what it is um and that absolutely is something that will never ever ever work for his industry he says he says basically at some point in time as this stuff gets closer to market like they are going to have to invite the everyday person to sort of be able to see these facilities that this that this meat is growing in they're going to have to be able to orchestrate people walking into these actual big bioreactor tanks let them see exactly where things are happening to some extent that's still like like trimmings and trappings not giving you you know i i don't think that i would even though i know the space better than the average person i don't think i don't have the scientific knowledge to know what's happening in my food but yeah, there is like a certain opacity I don't know if we'll get over, especially in the in, in the U.S. where, you know, in terms of the FDA and the USDA, getting a product onto the market doesn't even require like a legalized process. It's just sort of like a sort of a stamp of approval that companies really want to have so that they don't get in trouble down the line. We're talking about uh, the future of protein at Climate One with uh, Chase Purdy, author of Billion Dollar Burger, Inside Big Tech's Race for the Future of Food. He's also a freelance journalist. And Sophie Egan, author of How to Be a Conscious Eater, Making Food Choices That Are Good for You, Others, and the Planet. She formerly worked for the Culinary Institute of America. Rihanna Lin is an entrepreneur and former venture investor in the food tech space. A biologist by training, she founded a couple of food startups and interned at Michelle Obama's Kitchen Garden. She's now CEO of Journey Foods, a software company that helps food businesses source healthy ingredients. We asked her to peek behind the glossy image of companies promising new kinds of food. When we think about the impossible foods and the Beyond Burgers and these alternative chicken nugget companies, they're largely venture funded. They spend a lot of money on influencers and going after sort of that elite or more yuppie crowds, uh, at least in their marketing campaigns. But if you pull the cover back, you'll also see that there are Black-owned businesses and restaurant leaders that have been selling plant-based foods throughout communities like Brooklyn and Chicago and Oakland and Atlanta for years. And now they're able to buy direct supply from these burger companies and alternative product companies that they can put directly into their restaurants and directly into their catering. And so there's been very exciting growth, obviously on the retail side as people stock up their pantries and their refrigerators, spending more for dairy and meat alternatives. And it's across cohorts, across socioeconomic lines, across ethnicities. At the same time, if you look at the venture capital side, a lot of the companies that are well-funded, that are getting tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, and creating the future of food, don't necessarily have investors or team members that are as diverse as the United States. Are our food companies uh, and our research companies hiring uh, from 
historically black colleges and universities? Are they hiring immigrants? Are they hiring people that come from the middle of Arkansas? Black women that are starting food companies are giving equal access on the retail level, are raising just as much funds for their ideas. Food tech is generally seen as altruistic. You know, we like create beautiful websites and we tell people that we're gonna save a ton of greenhouse gas or we're gonna solve like indigestion with natural prebiotics. It runs the gamut of like things, mission-driven statements and solutions. A lot of people trust food tech leaders and food visionaries. And we really can't be scared to sort of challenge these systems. That was Rihanna Lynn, CEO of Journey Foods, speaking about the funding behind food companies that focus on elite customers, the altruistic motivations in food tech companies, their hiring practices, and challenging food systems. Sophie Egan, what structural racism do you see in the food industry? Oh, wow. Where do I start? Um, I mean, a, a very clear, vi- visually evident example has come forward in COVID, and that is the hands that feed us. Who are the quote-unquote essential workers? Uh, mentioned slaughterhouse workers, but it's not only that. It's delivery workers. It's um, it's the uh, folks that's called in the restaurant industry. It's um, back of the house. Often you see visibly different uh, faces in a restaurant in the front of the house versus the back of the house. A fantastic book um, is Saru Jayaraman, uh, Behind the Kitchen Door, that looked at the incredible wage differences in restaurants and food service um, between largely white uh, right, uh, waiters and servers and almost exclusively um, workers of color um, doing the dishwashing and the cooking in, in the back of the house. Food in so many ways is just, um, food is connected to everything. And so often the structural racism that occurs in the food system is it's like a um, the hub of a wheel and all of the spokes go to all of the other elements of society in which structural racism is also pervasive. Um, so we see this in, uh, I mentioned housing, but, but education, um, wages and so forth. Um, and, and just so many dimensions. Um, there's a lot of data that's that's come forward around this, um, also related to uh, the, the environment and climate. We can get into that, but uh, it's it's something that it doesn't surprise me that the um, conversations occurring right now around systemic racism have come about at the same time that so many of the uh, the flaws in the food system at large have come forward. The the many ways in which normal was a crisis for many, many people. Um, and, it, and it took uh, these, these awful recent months to shed a huge light on that. But in the ways in which the food system, those who are these, um, these incredibly uh, essential hands that feed us are not valued in the ways that they need to be. And that goes also to what I was mentioning before around true cost accounting. And so it's everything from, from wages to ho- housing for our, our migrant farm workers um, and so forth. Chase Purdy, you know, there's a narrative of an, an image of you mentioned to a, a vegan uh, to most people. They might think of, you know, um, kind of a relatively earthy white person. But there's a, another narrative there of vegans that, that is often overlooked and, and uh, pushed aside in the, in the media. Tell us about, you know, African-American black vegans, that, a story that just doesn't get told as much. Yeah, I think sort of the true American vegan story is never really told, which is that I think Black communities are often sort of the backbone of that. And what immediately comes to my mind is, you know, you can look her up. Her name's Tracy McWhorter. She's in the D.C. area. 
and she can basically, I mean, DC is, a, is just an example of this. Um, many, many, many of the first vegan restaurants peppered across DC, which has become like this food city in a way. Um, a lot of those early vegan places were started and run by black vegans. And those stories are never told. And because of the way that gentrification reshapes these cities, a lot of those places go out of business or are no longer there and they're forgotten. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, it is not necessarily that crunchy white person story that is actually the bedrock of the, the vegan movement in America. It's very much not that. Yeah. And actually the data has shown that um, the fastest growing vegan population in the U.S. is the black community. Uh, polls have found that 8% um, report being vegan compared to about 3%. You know, it, it is really exciting to me to see some organizations. There's a great one um, emerging called Earth in Color. Um, another organization that I'm actually part of called the Food for Climate League is really recognizing that there's this large demographic of eaters um, that's just not being spoken to with a lot of the narratives and a lot of the, ma the marketing that do only aim for the whole foods crowd or the, the white um, sort of whatever caricature of a vegan or of, a, or of just a climate conscious eater. Uh, another really important statistic is that has thankfully gotten some more attention recently is that by and large people of color are far more concerned about climate cri the climate crisis. And they're far more likely um, to say, they're far more willing to contribute to campaigns, to pressure politicians to do something about climate change. And so again, that is a really important piece of the conversation going forward at, at, because of how powerful a lever food is as a tool for climate action. And so these um, eaters kind of waiting in the margins to be to be activated, it's, it's just an enormous um, oversight uh, among climate activists, among food companies peddling plant-based foods. Um, and I'm excited about organizations that are really recognizing ways to bridge that gap and truly democratize sustainable eating. I'd like to go to uh, to our lightning round and ask each of you uh, first a true or false question. Uh, one word, true or false, uh, starting with Chase Purdy. Uh, true or false, more people have gone into outer space than have tried lab meat. True. Uh, Sophie Egan, the best way to get venture funding from white guys from Stanford is to be a white entrepreneur from Stanford or another elite university. Oh, true, 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 true. <laughs> and side note, everyone must read the book Brotopia, which dives into that in great detail. Uh, Chase Purdy, uh, true or false, impossible burger and beyond burgers are highly processed and industrialized food. Very true. Sophie Egan, those burgers would pass the Michael Pollan test of don't eat anything with ingredients you can't pronounce or your grandmother wouldn't recognize as food. False. They would not pass the Michael Pollan's test. Sophie Egan, true or false, you've eaten a plant-based burger in the last couple of months. False. Chase Purdy, you've eaten a plant-based burger in the past couple of months. True. I ate one last night. Sophie Egan, true or false, a vegan diet is always a healthy diet. Mm, definitely not true. False. Yep. Vegan fries and donuts. There are a lot of, there are many different ways to eat a very crummy vegan diet. Uh, true or false, Chase Purdy, cultured meat is hubris. To an extent, yes. True. Uh, just going to mention a person, place, or thing and ask you to uh, say the first thing that pops into your mind, unfiltered, with reckless abandon. Uh, Sophie Egan, what comes to mind when I say almonds? Crunch. 
often vilified. Uh, Chase Purdy, what comes to mind when I mention the public relations firm Edelman? Dubious. Supported. Uh, they did PR for the News Corporation when the hacking scandal in the UK, Keystone Pipeline, and others. Um, Sophie Egan, what comes to mind when I say Francis Moore LePay? Fight for a hot planet. Uh, OG climatarian. Yeah, original. Chase Purdy, what comes to mind when I say organic food? Questions. And last one for Sophie Egan, Amazon's purchase of Whole Foods. Everywhere. Just, it's everywhere. You're listening to a conversation about meatless burgers and other high-tech food. This is Climate One. Coming up, how to avoid over-glamorizing the companies and personalities involved in food innovation. We should feel free to ask them whatever questions we want to, where they're getting their money, how they're making their, their process, what their process looks like. What is inside your liquid medium? We have to be thoughtful and skeptical about all of these companies. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about the future of protein with Sophie Egan, author of How to Be a Conscious Eater, Making Food Choices That Are Good for You, Others, and the Planet, and Chase Purdy, author of Billion Dollar Burger, Inside Big Tech's Race for the Future of Food. With corporate giants like Tyson and Cargill looking to manufacture their own meat, I asked Chase about the ranchers and others in the meat processing industry who could be cut out of the action. Yeah, it's a it's a very real question, and luckily it's one that is not going to be uh, like someone switches a light on a, a light switch on a wall and things change overnight. But the reality is, if you ask sort of the scientists and CEOs who are in cell cultured meat companies, some of them are more candid than others and will say there is no long term future for those people, and so over time they will have to find work elsewhere. Uh, some are that candid. Um, I don't have a crystal ball and I can't look through look through the tea leaves. But, you know, one thing that this also brings to mind is I do wonder how many jobs and how many um, local agricultural economies and communities were, you know, reshaped over the last 100 years whenever the meat system continued to consolidate and consolidate and consolidate. Um, you know, it's not just we can't think about this as to where we are right now and how things may change. The food system, and particularly the meat system, has been reshaping communities across America for, you know, the last century in a huge way. Yeah, and as you've written about the, the huge consolidation, I'd like to ask Sophie about that that profit margin because you know um, there's, as you've noted, there's like four dollar fruit wraps, but uh, you know, but people don't, people don't buy. There's not as much of a financial incentive as you said earlier in lentils. So we're we're moving toward this food system that is driven by big bucks and highly concentrated power. Yeah, I mean the the, the four dollar fruit wrap example is to say that you know value added products. Um, are it's very it's a lot harder to drive um, sexy marketing and all, all of the same um, interesting and sort of appeal in just you know a, the bulk aisle or a, a, a whole bag of you know cow peas um, or uh, just whole apples versus the you know cartoon caricature adorned. Um, kind of fruit roll-ups. And that's really where, um, in general, processing is where companies make their money. And it's also where they 
fundamentally strip out and 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 um, taint, you know, strip out the most inherently good attributes of whole raw foods. Um, the most prime example of this is whole grains. This has occurred forever where there is actually, uh, one of the examples I've given is a, um, the, the label non-GMO oats. The reason this is a scam is that there actually are no, there's not enough research funding among oat farmers to even do the research um, because the people just don't eat enough oats in the US um, for them to have the, the kind of cash reserves to invest in that kind of, um, uh, of, of a version of, of oats. And, and you look at um, all the many wheat or oat or other derived products, right, that sell like crazy. And what they do is remove the, 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 the uh, bran and the germ, the most nutritious parts of a grain kernel, in order to turn it into a highly refined carbohydrate that has all kinds of health impacts in terms of blood sugar. Um, and, and the other piece of this that is not often talked about is that's all wasted food. That's the most essential nutrients. Um, it's literally a, a, a huge um, a crime, I think, in terms of, of food, the environmental side of this. Um, but absolutely, that's where the power comes from. And I think that the part that really gets me about a lot of, you asked about hubris, that gets me a lot, a lot of these, these founders of cultured meat companies and, and um, plant-based companies, and, and this is maybe to your very first question of the conversation of what they, these camps have in common, they sell the idea that they have the single bullet, that they are the solution to the protein crisis. What they agree on is that the status quo, factory farming, does not work. And, and that at least is a good starting point. But then instead of saying they're, um, it's going to take a whole suite or a whole toolbox of tools, and we're bringing forward one option that may work for some eaters, they, they get so much funding um, because they're selling like the magic solution, the be all end all. Um, and they do describe things very much in binary terms. Like we will take the entire industrial market uh, of, of raising livestock and shift it completely to you know, what we're doing. And I just find that kind of thinking incredibly problematic because we're talking about systems, first of all, and we're talking about people who put food in their mouths and they do so for very different reasons. They have dietary restrictions, they have medical uh, constraints, they may have different um, palates and cultural uh, considerations, different um, budgets. Uh, then there's just the whole range too that people are not, um, people eat something different based on day parts, based on our moods. So there's so much more nuance and gray area that gets completely left on the chopping block in these VC pitches. And that's the part that I find very troubling is the, the notion that there is a one solution um, and then if we just funnel enough VC uh, funds to it, you know, that's that problem solved. And Sophie, again, a lot of this is really driven by uh, a presumption of a need for protein. Are people, how much protein do people need? And are we eating, many people eating too much? Oh my gosh, yes. I'm glad you asked about this. So <laughs> there's um, kind of this trio of, of sub-myths that together make up what I call the great protein myth. Um, and this is uh, basically in the U.S., um, we think we need more protein than we do. Um, we think we get less protein than we actually do. Um, and we think that the meat that comes from animals um, or the protein that comes from animals is, is superior. None of those things is true. In reality, um, Americans eat about twice the recommended amount of protein. Um, North Americans eat about six times the recommended amount of red meat. Um, and even on vegan and vegetarian diets, you easily get hit the kind of 
um, threshold for protein. And so actually this is again, like the whole grain story I was telling you, it's also a huge food waste and natural resource um, issue when you come down to it, because what happens is your body can't do anything with that extra protein. Um, it's just waste in your, in your, in, in your system. And so all the resources that are going into all of the protein, which happens to have, you know, animal protein has to have the highest impact um, in terms of any of the foods. It's just, a, it's a huge um, waste and, and it's not doing our bodies any good. So there's this anxiety about protein. And a lot of it has to do, I think, with kind of years of eating refined carbohydrates and having these, the blood sugar crash when you just rely on foods that have no protein, but we've swung so in the opposite direction that you've seen, you know, years of protein on labels of products like water and cereal, um, where they, they really, you know, you, you don't need to be worried about it. The other key part of this, um, to go back to the notion that there really are, should not be this single um, magic bullet approach, is that one of the many solutions forward is just to eat less protein. Um, it's not the which of the many um, solutions out there will kind of replace what we're doing, but actually just in total reducing the anxiety and realizing that through a mix of foods throughout the day, whole grains, vegetables, those contribute to your total protein intake. So you don't have to eat just like pure slabs of protein to get your daily uh, intake. So I hope that that is at least seen as a piece of the puzzle too, uh, because it can go a long way. It, it's wasted money, wasted um, calories, and, and certainly wasted resources. We have a question from Tammy on YouTube. Will there be a place for using crickets or cricket flour in the future? Yes, in general, the protein shift that we mentioned is needed um, should include many different pathways. I believe that insects, um, kind of other forms of uh, animal protein, if you will, will definitely play a role. Another thing that will play a role is just trading down um, within the animal kingdom. So if you go from, um, if you replace just some of your pork or beef intake with poultry or eggs, that has a far lower carbon and water footprint. Um, if you uh, also look at um, sustainable uh, proteins from the sea, algae is going to play a key role in seaweed. Um, these things grow like crazy and very nutritious. Um, then of course too, we, you know, we did mention, mention legumes, but just in general, what should be a key theme of the future of protein is greater diversity, um, greater biodiversity overall, um, and greater diversity of the types of protein that we consume. And when you get right down to it, what we currently rely on is rather boring right? There's only so many ways to eat chicken. Chase Purdy, we're, as we get close to the end, I want to come back to, you know, um, you know, the sort of the glam of that comes out of Silicon Valley. Food tech is very sexy. And as I was reading your book, um, you know, mentioned some famous billionaires, some famous companies. And I thought about asking about them. Then I thought, well, if I do that, am I kind of, you know, falling into that narrative of of kind of contributing to that that sheen around these companies uh, and kind of glamorizing the, what I think you end up fairly skeptical about the industrialization of, of where this is going and the concentration of power. So I'd like to end there and just, just talking about, you get sort of philosophical at the, at the end about what is food and our relation to it. And, you know, are we playing into someone's hands, you know, I used to, you know, as a journalist, if we say, oh, this famous, you know, VC or this billionaire is behind this company, that means that it's cool and smart. Your reaction to that? Um, yeah, I absolutely think that, you know, sure, you can talk about how Bill Gates is interested in this, how Li Ka-shing in Hong Kong has been putting money into this. You can mention those names. 
at the end of the day, um, these sort of alternative meat products in some ways are like the granddaddy of processed foods. And I think that especially when you look at what has happened um, in the U.S. in regards to health that can be tied to our diets. And um, we have every single reason to not trust and to ask every question we, that comes to our brains about uh, to, toward the companies that are making these types of foods for us. And, you know, my hope with this book is that it sort of gives people a little bit more of the language to ask those questions. I think that the potential upsides to cell cultured meat, for example, are so enormous. I mean, to tackle that 14.5% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions being tied to animal agriculture, to not skeptically and thoughtfully consider the possibilities of how cultured meat could help us tackle those things. Like, I feel like that would be irresponsible but they absolutely should not be given a free pass. We should demand transparency from these companies and we should feel free to ask them as whatever questions we want to, where they're getting their money, how they're making their, their process, what their process looks like. What is inside your liquid medium? How do we like, I mean, we have to be thoughtful and skeptical about all of these companies, especially, especially when they speak about themselves in such aphoristic terms. Um, you can't trust anything. And I think you should ask everything. And Sophie Egan, a lot of them are using climate as a, as a sales tool, tool, you know, by this, that we want, we are the climate saviors because cows are bad and, you know, technology, food tech will save us. Right. And I mean, I certainly echo everything that Chase said. I, I offer in my book, how to be a conscious eater, a more holistic way of evaluating food choices that says, yes, is it good for the planet, but also is it good for you? And is it good for others? And having that more holistic set of apertures through which to view your food choices will help you know which questions to ask so that you don't get sort of tunnel vision and, and um, so um, myopically focused on the one attribute that, that they're leading with. Um, and this is a playbook that's come from a wide history um, in terms of health and nutrition being the, the key. Same as I said, there's many ways to eat a, a crummy vegan diet. Um, just because something is plant-based doesn't mean it's good for you. Um, doesn't mean it's good for others and the workers and so forth. So it definitely, um, having that kind of mental checklist over time can, can, be, can serve as essentially sort of the buckets uh, to find the factors um, or to identify the factors that you want to be on the lookout for. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it may very well be that they're, that they're hitting the nail on the head in one of those dimensions, um, but hold them accountable. Ask those questions to find out about the rest and to really probe into what's behind whichever nail they're purporting to be hitting the head on. We've been talking about high-tech alternatives to animal protein with Chase Purdy, author of Billion Dollar Burger, Inside Big Tech's Race for the Future of Food, and Sophie Egan, author of How to Be a Conscious Eater, Making Food Choices That Are Good for You, Others, and the Planet. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a five-star rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. I recorded this conversation at the studios of Spokane Public Radio and would like to thank Brian Lindsay and Jerry Olson for their hospitality while I was on a road trip. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. 
Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.